Good morning. Our scripture passage today is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 53, which can be found on page 1587 of the Pew Bible. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Thanks, Libby. If you're newer, we're doing a series called Entrusted right now on what's called stewardship, which is our acknowledgement and realization as Christians that we own nothing in the ultimate sense. And yet we're in charge. God has put us in charge of everything in our life, and we have to govern, and we have to invest the way he wants us to. And so the first week I lit this candle, which is burning very, like, wizard-like over here. And the purpose of this burning during the service is as a constant reminder to us that your life and our life is a perishing resource. You can waste your life, or you can invest your life. The only thing you can't do is keep your life. And so if you see that, 
then you realize the meaning of the purpose of stewardship. Your life is something that can and must be invested, or it will be wasted. And you have to decide what you're going to do. Um, the first week, we also encouraged everybody to take one of these pieces of cardboard. You can still get these outside. And <clears throat> they've got three notches. And what you do is you take the piece of cardboard, you cut out these three notches, and then you write or paint with oils or whatever on what, what you're learning about the idea of being a God's steward on here. And then w- when you've done that, because stewardship is a concept that can be understood in a shallow way clearly, and it can be understood with unlimited depth. So if you're open, you will learn something, and, and you will make some decisions about how to be a better steward or a more faithful steward. Write that stuff on this and then bring it back before the last week, and we'll add it to the bridge that we're building with these. And on the last week, I'm going to attempt to walk over the bridge. Um, 40 feet in the air. I'm just kidding. Um, and the purpose of that is to demonstrate how um, your job is not to save the world. My job is not to save the world. My job is to do what God has put me to here to do today. To fulfill my role today. To be faithful. And if I'm faithful and you're faithful and we are all faithful, we will accomplish what we're called to accomplish together. Does that make sense? So take one of these if you haven't taken it. Go through the spiritual exercise of writing what you're learning about or deciding about stewardship on it, and then bring it in and add it to the bridge so that I will not perish the last week. There's also a devotional that we made, and this actually is a great week to do your devotional because I am only going to speak for a little while on the passage today. And this is one of those passages where there is so much in it, and I won't be able to bring it out in the sermon. So get one of these devotionals and then work through daily the daily Bible study, because ultimately to be a steward, you have to understand what it means. And you can only do that if you spend time in God's Word and grow as a steward. And then you'll know what to do in each moment of your life, and you can choose to do it faithfully. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, One of the reasons why I'm not going to preach the standard 90 minutes I normally do is because we have some friends here from uh, from Israel. Um, Bob Grauman is going to come up. He is one of the directors um, of—for InterVarsity, for their international— missionaries and the, some of the people working in IFES, and Rasha is their director in Israel. And so Bob is going to tell you some about Rasha. Rasha is going to tell you a little bit about her ministry in Israel as the steward there, and um, she's also going to share a little bit about how she theologically understands how to be a steward in a place like Israel, where there can be a lot of division. Why don't you guys come? All right. Well, the theme is stewardship. And in that context, I want to introduce to you Rasha Saba. And Rasha is the director of the uh, student ministry in the nation of Israel, connected to the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. The IFES is a worldwide ministry in about 160 countries to university students. And InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is one member. So the IFES is uh, in Israel. It's basically InterVarsity in Israel. And each IFES movement has its own name. In Israel, it is called the Fellowship of Christian Students in Israel. So if you're in Israel looking, don't look for InterVarsity or IFES, look for FCSI. That's the name of the movement. 
and Rasha is the director or the steward of that ministry, the manager of the ministry. And um, the really interesting thing about the nation of Israel, which you may not know, is it's only 80% Jewish. Uh, 20% of Israeli citizens are Arab ethnicity. And then they're not all Muslims. 8% of them are Christians, self-identified Christians. And only 3% of them are evangelicals in the sense that they believe in the, the, the authority of the scripture and the uh, deity of Jesus and the idea of outreach, sharing your faith. And Rasha, as an Arab evangelical Christian, is the minority of the minorities. She's part of the 3%, which is part of the 8%, which is part of the 20%, which is part of the country. And, uh, and part of Rasha's job is to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because it's a great miracle, the FCSI is growing among the university students. And it's awesome to be there and to worship with them because the FCSI consists of Jewish students who've come to Jesus, Arab students who've come to Jesus, and international students who've come to Jesus, and they form one fellowship. Can you imagine the people from such different backgrounds being together in Christ? It's a great witness to the gospel in that country. And Rasha's job as the director is to keep that unity, uh, keep them working together. So um, Rasha, I'm gonna turn it over to you and to share a little bit about yourself and also from the scripture, how God has spoken to you about power and suffering as a minority in the tumult of the Middle East, trying to hold forth the gospel in that situation. So what has God said to you to share with us? Thank you, Bob. Thank you all for this great opportunity to be with you here. Um, it's such a privilege to be here and to worship God in both the services. I just feel the presence of the Lord here in the midst. Um, so it's an honor and it's always great to feel that you're part of a bigger family, especially when you're a minority. I, uh, so as Bob said, I come from uh, a minority. I'm a Christian Arab who lives in Nazareth. And uh, you know, uh, in Nazareth, we like to say that if you have a question, if there's something good coming out of Nazareth, we have an answer for you. Please come and see. So please... Um, Consider that as an invitation to come and see what is Nazareth and see the living stones that, in, that are in Nazareth. So I'm married to a wonderful man of God. His name is Ronnie, and he is uh, a, an elder at the Baptist church that is uh, newly planted near Nazareth in a village that has only one evangelical church. So we serve together there, and we lead worship together. And it's so good always to be worshiping God. That was a great worship this morning. Um, we both grew up in a Christian homes, evangelical Christian homes. We're both a second generation in the evangelical church. But our 
families were um, traditional Christians and they were in the land forever, I think. You can go back, track it back uh, to, the, to the first church. And as Bob was introducing me, I am a minority within a minority within a minority, and it is hard sometimes. It's, uh, you're small in number, you feel that you don't belong, and as a Christian, you're also, you don't know to whom you are. Uh, you, don't, you don't have a, a big um, group of people in, uh, that share the same faith with you. And you don't have enough power or enough resources. But, and uh, many people will oppose you, will oppose your faith. Sometimes they will be aggressive also. So to do ministry in such a context is not easy. But the picture that strikes me and encourages me is a picture from Revelation chapter 5. Um, in Revelation, we know that John and the church are facing persecution, and John is in, the pre in, in prison. But in that chapter, he gets a glimpse from heaven, and there he is searching for who is the one who triumphs, who is the one who is victorious. So in verse 5, he starts weeping because he couldn't find anyone, but in, in verse 5, it's, he, he hears a voice, and the voice tells him, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John is turning, expecting a roaring, mighty lion to be sitting there. And what he sees is a lamb who is slain. And then in verse 6, it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. For me, I think it gives me perspective. This is the secret of the universe. It's an unexpected picture, surprising picture to John and to us. The lion has not overcome by being a lion. The lion overcomes by becoming a lamb and giving himself for the life of the world. In, this middle, in the middle of this throne, in the center of this throne, there is sacrificial love, self-giving love. And this is the heart of God for humanity right from the beginning. It's the heart of God for us, and we are called to be with Jesus in this. We are called to reign with Jesus, not in power, but with sacrificial love. Sacrificial love that um, moves history forward. Yes, um, when we look around us, we, it seems like the people who would get credit are the people who have power. But those are not the ones who move history forward. They are not the ones who shape history. They might roll over people, but I don't think they will win people. And the picture, this picture really puts things into perspective for us um, in Israel, for me personally, as a Christian who's trying to be a steward in this land. Um, it is true that the people of faith in Israel are a minority within the Christian Arabs or the Jewish Messianic. It is true that me as a, a, a member of the Christian Arabs in the Middle East are a small minority in this region of chaos. We're maybe 1%. And that our numbers even are dwindling. But it is also true that God's faithfulness does not dwindle with our numbers. 
and he is faithful from generation to generation, we are there, and we are there for a calling. We are there to offer the free gift of salvation to everyone in this land, in this area. And um, the victory comes through suffering. The victory comes uh, through um, following the lamp. And suffering moves a, the gospel forward. Um, for us in FCSI, the Fellowship of Christian Students in Israel, we have a vision, a simple vision, is to equip our students in faith, but also to minister and, and bring the gospel, bring the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who is on campus, whether it, uh, he is from a Jewish ethnicity, an Arab ethnicity, whether he comes from uh, a Muslim background, a Christian nominal background, a Jewish background, to everyone who is on the campus. Um, we have limited resources and we face opposition, and it is hard work and a costly work. Many of our students, if they come to faith, they may face uh, denial from their own families or from their own communities, especially when we're talking about Jewish students or Muslim students that would take a step and come to faith. We also, uh, as Bob mentioned, we're also unique by having the body of Christ um, as Christian Arabs and, and uh, Messianic Jews together in one ministry. And that is not an easy task either, to maintain, keep the unity and, uh, and have reconciliation between us. So we're trying to bring this unity, and it's also a hard task. But also the sacrificial love is the key for this, is the key for unity. It is by following the Lamb's pattern. It is by giving up our pride. It is by being able to forgive others who hurt us, maybe. Being able to repent. Being able to give in and give up some of our opinions or uh, some of our thoughts and uh, rights, maybe. Um, but this is, the, uh, this, is, this is the image that brings the power. This is the lion who, um, who reigns through suffering and through sacrificial love, who put himself before others, who, who went uh, and, and was willing to go all the way to the cross and who is asking us to do the same and go all the way and deny ourselves, carry our cross daily and follow him in that. So please pray for us in the midst of that. So, Rasha, um, what can we be praying for you? Yeah, um, so pray for everything I was saying, and especially I want to emphasize two things. One, please pray for our, for our students to be faithful witnesses and to be bold enough that they know that it is costly, but they want to share their witness, they want to share the truth, and that they will be able to... Uh, pay the price for sharing the truth. Also, because of all of the uh, hardships sometimes for young people, uh, the temptation is to leave just and look for a better uh, opportunities. So pray that the young generation will not fall into this temptation and will stay because we need them as light and salt in this land. And the second thing is continue pray for us as the body of Christ in Israel 
to continue to seek unity in the midst of conflict and divisions. It's not easy. This is the pattern we want to go through. And, uh, but please continue to pray for us in that. Word of prayer now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that um, 2,000 years ago, you raised up these small communities of your people throughout uh, Israel and the Middle East, and then into Turkey and Europe. Communities of people who were, some of whom were Jewish by background, some of whom were Gentiles, and you called them to unity, and you called them to witness for you. Lord, I thank you, you've done the same thing in modern day Israel. You have raised up a community of students who love you, some of them from Jewish background, some of them from Arab background, some of them internationals, some of them former atheists, and you've brought them together to be your community. Lord, give them courage and strength in their witness. Lord, may they have a strong effect on their friends and fellow students and on the culture of that country. Thank you for calling Rasha to be the leader and director of the movement. Give her special strength and courage. It's hard, Lord. Give her courage and give her a deep sense of your spirit and power. And Lord, we pray for those young people um, who are very tempted to leave that area of the world and come to a safer place uh, in the West or in Europe and to leave the tumult and fear and violence of the Middle East, Lord, call them to stay. I pray that they would have the courage to stay to uphold your gospel in that place. So thank you, Lord, for what you're doing there. Thank you for Russia. Bless her, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. I'll take care of that, don't worry. <clears throat> this is yours. I got it from the Lost and Found. I washed all the rum out of it. There's just water in it now, so you can come get it after the service. Um, so I'm just going to speak for a few minutes on this passage. And um, I also, at 8 o'clock, Yesterday evening I was in Colorado, so I got home at like 2 a.m., slept in my clothes, and here I am. So uh, hopefully this will still be coherent. <clears throat> We've, we talked a little bit about vigilance and about being a steward, and I want you to know that I, there's a lot of difficult stuff in this passage, and if you read it throughout the week, you'll pay more attention to some of the difficult stuff in this passage. But I want you to know that I see every day fruit from people in this church growing in spiritual substance and being increasingly— faithful stewards of what God has called them to do in their life. Just to see families up here who have committed themselves to being married to each other, to having good marriages, and to dedicate their children is part of the day in and day out role of, of being a grown-up and trying to learn how to live with somebody who's the opposite sex as you and thinks that you're insane, and to raise a child in that, and— um, and whenever people have children, it's always a sign of hope, right? And um, I talked to somebody between services who was just horribly slandered at work in his government job recently. And he's just like, look, I know that stuff's going to happen, but I'm still trying to be a light there. Um, 
and I just, in lots of different ways, in lots of moments, in lots of relationships, I just see people doing the right thing as best they can in the name of Jesus. And that's really what stewardship is, right? So the point that Jesus pushes in this passage is a focus on stewardship being focused on vigilance. A steward has to be vigilant, which essentially means to be faithful without apparent help from the master for as long as it takes. One of the things Jesus emphasizes in this passage is that the master leaves servants in charge, and then that master leaves and does not come back soon, does not send word about when he or she is coming back, and comes back at any time of the day or night completely unannounced. That's a very important imagery, right? He wants us to think about ourselves as servants that way. We have no long idea how long it's going to be. He's going to be gone, and he's going to come back, and we're either going to be doing what we're meant to do or not, right? Um, a servant doing what they're supposed to do, all that means is they're just doing their job and not quitting, right? So to put this in context, I'd be like, if you were a dishwasher at a restaurant, when the owner of the restaurant comes in, they would find you washing dishes. If you had dishes to wash, right? Just doing the thing you're supposed to be doing. One of, one of the, um, anyway, so let's just go through a couple things in this passage. One is, is that well, in that first section that Libby read, the main focus is, that a steward is ready for as long as it takes. They're ready to do whatever they need to do at whatever moment it is for as long as it takes, and it's going to be longer than you think. Right? The, the emphasis of the passage is, is that the master is going to be gone longer than you think is reasonable. I see this with my kids sometimes, where um, I'll tell them I have to go, you know, talk with a family about the mar- their marriage, right? And my, my kids are kind of like, that should take about 20 minutes, you know? And if I'm coming to your house on a weeknight, it's not going to take 20 minutes, right? And so they're, they're always kind of like, Dad, why aren't you home sooner? And because they don't know all my business, right? And I'm not going to tell them all my business because I have to tell them all of your business, right? And so they don't get to know all of that. And that's part of being a steward or a servant is that you're put in charge of their house. And then they go and take care of something, some other business that they have that you may not know that much about. And so you don't know when they're going to come back. And you always think they ought to come back sooner. And you can't possibly know that. The master's going to come back when he comes back. And the question is simply going to be, are we going to be at what we're supposed to be doing? Right? And the benefits for it are really great. Like, it's very easy to read the last part of that passage where he's like, look— If I put somebody in charge of the rest of the servants and he starts getting drunk and beating up on people and stuff like that, when the master comes back, he's going to cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbeliever. And you're like, wow, that's—that's aggressive. And that is aggressive, right? But don't miss the promises, right? The the promise he makes in the first part of that passage to all the servants who aren't even stewards, the like the lowly servants. He's like, listen, when the master comes back, he's going to seat you at his table to eat. And he's going to put on servant clothes— and he's going to serve you like you're the owner, right? And in the second passage, he says that for the stewards, those who, who are in charge, he said he's going to come back and he's going to put you in charge of everything that belongs to him, right? That's part of the promise. But only if we have a mindset and we're ready to be as faithful as long as it takes. If you think that you're just holding out for a little while, you're not going to make it, Right? I wish I could go into that more. I can't this morning. But you can find out more if you study this passage by reading the Bible each day and use that devotional.
The second thing is, is that you've got to be ready for the conflict that serving Jesus is going to create, which is counterintuitive on one level, okay? So if you think about it this way, Jesus came to bring a message of peace, right? His whole message is a message of peace that you and I, who are not at peace with God, can be at peace with God if we put our trust in him, right? All of the things that Jesus is teaching, he's calling people back to God. And, to, and he's calling people back to have a relationship with him and have, have, a, have a, good, a good relation, right? But here's the problem. Do not be so naive as to believe that when a message of peace is preached, that what it is going to produce is peace. Right? Because the message has to be accepted. And there are some people that are going to accept it. And there are some people who are not going to accept it. And then there's going to be conflict between those two receptions. Right? So when Jesus says, I have not come to bring—you think I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace on the earth. I've come to bring a sword. He's not saying that, like, I've come to intentionally create conflict where no conflict is necessary. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's come to bring peace. But the kind of message of peace that he's bringing is one that is in proper relationship with the truth, with real justice, with real goodness. And so that message of peace is rigid in that it— it will stay true to the truth, true to goodness, true to beauty, true to all the things it must be related to. And so the message of peace is not the message you may want. It includes the message of you being a sinner, for example, of you not bearing the image of God well, of you being the proper object of God's moral anger that is completely proportionate and not an overreaction at all. That you and I were meant to be the image of God in the world. That when people saw us or were touched by us, that they would touch the attitude and character of God. And that has not been happening with us. And the only way peace can happen is if justice happens. If we are brought back into being just. If we are drawn into goodness. That we, we aren't playing around pretending we're good. We actually become good. And that can only happen, God says, by a complete spiritual renovation of our insides. This starts with repentance, admitting that we are completely wrong, okay? Now that is a message of peace because it can produce forgiveness and reconciliation and real peace. But a lot of people are going to hate that message and they are going to therefore hate the people who believe that message and there is going to be conflict, okay? So as a steward who is going to make it to the end— you can't afford to be naive about the conflict that the message of the peace of Christ is going to create. The message of the peace of God is going to create conflict. The message of the love of God is going to create hatred. The message of the justice of God is going to produce all kinds of slanders and injustices against you. That's what's going to happen. You cannot afford to be naive about that, right? People tend to fail when their expectations aren't met. And if you have expectations that, well, Jesus is the God of peace, so my life is going to be just full of peace. Your inner life can be full of peace. You can be reconciled to God of soul. You can be forgiven in Christ. You can know God. You can experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can know what you're put on this earth for. All the division and brokenness inside of you, all the internal warring factions 
the lack of integrity of your own heart can be broken in Christ. And you can will and want one thing in him and you can be his and be his steward and be his son or daughter and you can have no confusion inside of you for who you are. You can have peace with God. Do not mistake that for that eliminating conflict in your life. Jesus had peace with his father and giving the message of peace to all people at complete internal peace with his father created an enormous amount of conflict. Okay? And that's what's going to happen with us. And you need to know that. And you need to be ready for it. And there's no decent boundaries to this. You would think that at least there would be the decency and the boundaries of this, that it wouldn't impact your family, right? Maybe politically or maybe culturally, but not your own family, right? And Jesus is known. Listen, this comes down to individuals believing and trusting in me. And so even within a family, there can be division. You can have a family of five people and two are against three and three are against two in this. And it can create real conflict. And even the, like the most sacred relationship on earth, the relationship between mothers-in-laws and daughters-in-laws even could be destroyed by this. Right? And so if we're going to be stewards— we have to be vigilant. We have to be realistic about what it means to be ready, to last, to know. Listen, if you're, vigilance is usually a soldier word, right? There's a guard and they are watching and they have to be ready to last the whole night and they have to be ready to be attacked, right? They have to know that like, yeah, it's peaceful right this second, but at any minute it can get not peaceful. And that's the whole reason I'm here. The whole reason there's going to be conflict in your life is because you are a steward and you are sent with the message of peace. That's why there will be more conflict in your life. It's supposed to happen because some people will respond. Well, everybody will respond, <laughs> right? Now, there's a turn that happens right at the end of the passage, and it's the end of chapter 12, and um, Libby didn't read that part, okay? But Jesus says something really— um, really important, but there's a, a change in verse 54. He says, it says, then Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge will turn you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. And I tell you, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. You see the point there? The three passages preceding that, it says, and Jesus said to his disciples. So for a bunch of verses, Jesus is specifically talking to people who've already committed themselves to him. They're already his followers. They believe in him. They're his. And so he says, listen, you're already stewards. Here's what you need to know about being mine, right? And he covers this. And then he stops, and then he starts talking to everybody, including all the people that don't already believe. And he says, listen, you need to think about this, right? Like, you know, you can read the weather. And you know that when you see something happening, it's inevitably going to create the result that you know. So like, you can look off in the distance, and you can see storm clouds coming, and you know you're going to get a storm. And you're right! And you can see the clear skies, and you can know what time of year it is, and you can kind of know things, and you can know if it's going to be a super hot day, and you'll be right. And he's like, listen, 
you actually already have the capacity to know what's going to happen to you. You already know. You can deny that you know, but you know. You know that you live in a moral universe. You can believe all you want. You can tell yourself secular fairy tales that all there is is empirical stuff and there's nothing more to the universe than that. You can tell yourself that. You can say that all religion is just like, you know, made up superstition to help people with their fear of death or with their want for power or their lack of power. And you can come up with all those things, but you know that there is a ineradicable part of you that knows you live in a moral universe. Right? And there's enough to even judge yourself because it says in Romans 2, for example, every time you morally judge another person, you admit to yourself that you know you live in a moral universe and that you're terrible. Right? And we do it constantly. I mean, somebody cuts you off on the road and you're like, you know, you get all upset, morally upset. This shouldn't have happened to you. It's programmed in you on a deeper level than you could possibly know. You believe that there should be justice. That is not an empirical scientific category. That is a moral, spiritual, metaphysical category about you being more than just an animal. You know it. You don't have to be a Christian. You're an atheist and you know it. You know it. You know it like you can see clouds rising and you know it's going to rain. And Jesus is saying, why don't you judge for yourself? You know what's coming. I don't have to even tell you. You know it. Right? And he says this, listen, it's just like a legal situation, right? Like if somebody comes and sues you for breaking the law and hurting them, and they're asking for damages, and they're like, hey, you need to sort this out with me. And you're like, no. And he's like, listen, there is a chain reaction here. Once you say no to reconciling with your accuser, he hands you over to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer. The officer hands you over to the prison, and you are never getting out. Right? And he's like, listen, the judicial nature of the universe is that way. Okay, you cannot wait. You can't be like, well, I'll just see what happens in court. You don't want to have that attitude. You don't want to be like, well, I'll just go to trial with this. He's like, morally speaking, you do not want to go to trial. Right? Especially when Jesus is offering the plea deal that he is offering. Okay? Jesus is offering like, I will pay everything. You will pay nothing. All you have to do is deeply, truthfully acknowledge what you did. You have to say, you're right. I did all that. I have not borne the image of God right. I have done whatever I wanted. I have not lived as though God was king and I was his steward. I have not lived like I exist to bear and speak the very image of God's character and meaning into the world because I'm an image-bearing human being. I have pretended that I was less than that so I could do what I want. You are right. And if you will admit that God is right, he will give you—he will pay everything. That's the plea deal. The minute you go to the judge, the plea deal's over. And Jesus is like, listen, the minute that gavel goes down and you find out that you didn't win the case— you're done, man, because he hands you over to the officer, the officer gives you to the prison, and then you're stuck there until you've paid every penny, and you never will. And just like when the storm is coming, like when you see the lightning, it's time to get into the house before the storm is already on you. You already know what's going to happen. You know what's coming down the pipe. You understand how things legally should happen. You have in you an innate sense of justice. You already know. Just admit it. He's like, just turn. Just turn to me and receive peace. Just repent and believe, and I'll do everything for you. 
Just be, just realize that you're meant to be a steward, that your life is a gift. Everything in God's universe is a gift. Your life is a gift. Your salvation, your redemption, your forgiveness, your eternity is all a gift. Right? And he's saying to all this crowd that hasn't yet recognized that they must become a steward, he's saying, listen, just admit to yourself what you really already know. And realize and think ahead that you don't want to go to trial. You don't want to wait for the judgment of God. Right now, you should face up to the truth. Face up to the truth. Face up that the message of peace requires goodness, justice, and beauty from your life that you can't offer, that you must receive from God as a gift. Credited to you, and then through God's spirit and power, formed in you. And then you'll be the steward that you were meant to be. Then you'll be ready to face any conflict that comes into your life. You'll have peace on the inside, and you will have the strength of vigilance to last forever. But you have to, you have to be reconciled before you can be ready. If you don't have sorted out in your heart and mind, if you don't repent and believe, if you don't accept on the deepest possible level that God is the master and you are the servant, he is the giver and you are the receiver, if you don't allow yourself the peace of realizing that you've gone far wrong and that God, Christ died while we are yet his enemies for us, you can't ever be a steward. But if you turn to him, you can be. You can invest what you might otherwise waste. You can, you can take your part in what we are all meant to build together. You can inspire others. And you may be even lifted in a stewardship where you're meant to lead God's other servants. And don't miss, with, with the true threats that are present, don't miss the incredible promises. He's longing for the day when he can act as servant and he can reward and bless you at his table and treat you like you're the owners. Or the day where he can take all that you had to lead and all that you had to bear in a world where every moment of leadership is difficult. Listen, if you're not responsible for anything, be careful about wishing you were in charge. Because in this world, being in charge of anything with any kind of nobility is just hard. And he says, listen, if you bear that well, the day will come where I'll make you in charge of all my possessions in a country and in a kingdom where it isn't hard. And that's what awaits you. That's what he offers you. And so um, the worship team is going to come up. As I pray, if, you're, if you already know you're a steward, if you're one of his disciples, just think about, are you, are you mentally prepared to go the distance knowing that it's going to be longer than you think is reasonable? And are you prepared to receive the peace of God inside of you but realize that the message of peace in this world creates a division and you will have to face that division? just like Jesus did. And are you ready for that? And do you know that's part of your calling? And if you are not yet, if you don't yet acknowledge that you're Jesus Stewart, if you have not come to him yet, if you haven't repented and believed and received his plea deal and, and said, I don't want to go to the judge. I want to sort this out with you, God, right now. You can sort it out with him right now. 
right? It's a, have you ever watched—does anybody watch soccer? Nobody watches soccer, right? There's this funny thing in international soccer matches where—I'm doing—this is for your parents, Agus, um, who are here from Argentina, right? Um, at the end of professional soccer games internationally, you know how soccer players are always flopping on the ground like they're hurt? And they're usually hurt a little bit, right? What happens is the referee, like, adds injury time onto the end of the game. And so you come to the end of regulation time, and then there's this unspecified injury time where people are still playing, and then at some point the ref just grabs the ball and the game's over, right? And it's funny because you never know how long it's going to be. You know about, but you, you don't know. And, and we all, all of us, we all live in injury time. You just, you just don't know when it's over, right? Don't wait. Score the goal now. He's already pulled the goalie. I know I'm mixing soccer and hockey right now, okay? <laughs> but like, he, like, he's doing everything possible. And one of the reasons why the first point is you're going to have to wait longer than you think is because that longer time that we all have to endure as Christians is so everybody who hasn't come to the gospel has more time. Other places in the Bible explicitly say that's the reason, both globally so that the gospel can go to every end of the earth and personally so that if you have been stubborn, the reason we're all stuck here is for you because God would rather us have to wait and be stuck in all this waiting and conflict than to condemn you because he wants you to settle. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to be part of that table that he's preparing. And so all of us are waiting around and stuck in conflict so that you can have another day. So you can have this moment of injury time. And you can believe right now. Believe right now as we reflect. Believe right now as we pray. Tell somebody. Give yourself to Jesus. It's what you were made for. And you, you already know it like you can see the weather coming. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we um, turn to you now to worship and to put our trust in you and to know that um, you knew that we would feel um, like you were taking too long. We, you knew that we would feel like you should have come sooner. You should help us now. You should do things that look more like your help at this moment. And you told us why. You told us how to be ready. You told us exactly what it meant because you knew our needs before we had them. And so, God, will you help us now to thank you and to believe you for that? Help us to believe you by believing what you've said in your written word. Holy Spirit, give us the strength to believe. Help us as we try to honor and believe you in Jesus' name. Amen.